This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. did you say your name was? Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's not just about making the legal arguments, which I think she was always good at. It's about you know, making legal arguments is only half the battle. You also have to make the legal arguments in a way that are going to convince, especially in those days, men in authority who don't think you necessarily belong in what they think of as their sphere, to agree with you. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court and the courts and the law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover those things for Slate. And this week may indeed have been one of the most uh, overwhelming we've seen in a year of overwhelming news. With the shuttering of the Trump Foundation as a result of a New York lawsuit, Michael Flynn popping up in federal court, Jim Mattis quitting his job, and talk of a Christmas week shutdown looming over all Not least of which, a couple of hours after we taped the show, you're just about to hear, the Supreme Court released a statement saying that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's 85, had just undergone a pulmonary lobectomy at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City after two nodules in the left lung were discovered incidentally during tests for her recent rib fractures. According to the thoracic surgeon, there was no evidence of any remaining disease Our thoughts are with Justice Ginsburg and her family at this time. Now, in some sense, that makes today's conversation, which was taped before the news, with her nephew, Daniel Stiepelman, all the sweeter. The conversation is about the new RBG biopic, On the Basis of Sex, which opens in theaters this week. One of the reasons Daniel wanted to make this movie is to introduce us to the RBG who sometimes gets lost in all the hagiography. And we thought of this at the time as our holiday comfort food episode, something inspiring about the lasting impacts one person can have on the law. Friday's news doesn't change any of that. We do hope that getting to know the Ginsburg under the Ginsburg and all the ways that ordinary lawyers can sometimes make extraordinary change can still give you as much hope as it gave us. The movie is directed by Mimi Leader, written by Daniel Stiepelman. On the Basis of Sex stars Felicity Jones as a young and smoking hot Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Army Hammer as her husband, Marty Ginsburg. And after I watched it, I reached out to Daniel in part because I had some questions about a film that is, in a lot of ways, less RBG hagiography than a love letter to the law itself, the role of precedent, the ways that the Constitution can be an engine for lasting social change, even in hard times. This seems like an especially potent message at this very moment in this very country. And so, Daniel, welcome to Amicus. 
So I, I want to start with the fact that in addition to being the writer on this project, you are the nephew. Uh, I put that in quotes in my notes. Um, and I think the idea for this came to you at Marty Ginsburg's funeral. Well, Ruth right? would say I'm a nephew because she's very precise and there are others. <laughs> uh, yes, Martin Ginsburg is my mom's oldest brother. And I first heard the, the story of this case at Marty's funeral, as he said, uh, when a friend of his got up and gave just a, a beautiful eulogy about uh, the – well, it was about Marty's life. But right up to the end of his life, Marty said the most important thing he had ever done was hand Ruth the tax court advance sheet that became the only case they argued together um, because it allowed her to do what she went on to do. And I'm sitting there pretty newly married myself. My wife and I very consciously looked to Ruth and Marty as this is what a marriage is supposed to look like. Let's build a marriage like theirs. Uh, and so when I heard that story, I thought, wow, that would make a great movie. And that was my first thought. My second thought was, what kind of asshole am I? I'm sitting at my uncle's funeral mining his life for material. That's not like a thing you're supposed to do. You know, I'm sorry if you're lost. Can I have the rights? Um, and so I thought, well, that's too bad. I'll never get to write it. Um, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so finally, a year later, I called up Ruth and I said, I have this idea. I'd like your permission if possible. I would love your help. And and she said, and I quote, if that's how you think you want to spend your time. Uh, and so I did. Eight and a half years later, here we are. So I have the mug, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg mug. Uh, you probably have the mug. I have three T-shirts. I have the tote bag. I have the earrings. Uh, most of these are gifted to me. I wonder, in the eight years that you've been kind of crafting this, this has become almost a cult, right? I mean, this has become It's a little bit a weird because it's like my 85-year-old bubby, but everyone wants their selfies with her, yeah. So, so I guess my question is, when you started this project, that was beginning to happen, but certainly not... You know, she was not the iconic voice of the feminist resistance, In was fact, she? when I started this project, I said to somebody, I'm thinking about writing a movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And they said, well, the problem is nobody knows who Ruth Bader Ginsburg is. Oh, well, those days are over. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so I thought I was writing the movie that was going to introduce this woman and sort of this approach to creating cultural change to the country. Um, and then the country laughed ahead of me. So, so that's an interesting thing. So you started doing one thing and now in a weird way you're belated into this everybody thinks they know who she is but of course what they think they know is this kind of baller rapper you know gangsta and that is not at all the person i think she is you think she is and it's not the person in the movie which is it's just sort of treacherous waters right because for some people she's the person you just described lest we forget for some people she's an incredibly divisive character and i i'll be curious to see how it plays out when the movie comes out next week because um, I think some people need her to be that. And the Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the movie is very much just Aunt Ruth. Um, you know, a person with 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 flaws and struggles, you know, trying to become the person who who is, you know, now so idolized. So so talk a little bit, Daniel, because she did work with you on the script. She did talk to you. This wasn't sort of an unauthorized thing. And she I think is kind of ambivalent about the I, I think she loves the rock star attention. But I also think she feels that she is a pretty precise institutional player. And some of this stuff, I think, freaks her out. So what was it like when she looks at the script or she you're having conversations about what you're trying to do? Was there a ton of pushback? It wasn't pushback. Her mantra was always, if you're going to make a portrait of me, make it an accurate portrait. 
Um, and, and, and that was never approached from a place of ego. So she, you know, I would send her the script. Uh, I sent her, you know, early drafts and she would, you know, I call, and I'd call her up and she would say, oh, Daniel, I'm in the middle of reading the Affordable Care Act. Can you call <laughs> me back in 30 minutes, you know? And then I would call her back and then she'd say, okay, page one. And then she would go through it like a contract. Right? It's like the first sentence of the screenplay is a pair of heels and a, and an ocean of loafers or something like that. And, uh, and she'd be like, oh, in those days I used to walk to Harvard. And so I never wore heels. And I'm like, oh, this is how this is going to go. Great, I great. see. Um, that's why it took eight years. That's right. That's right. It was actually just eight years of getting notes on the first <laughs> round. Um, but the notes were, so I had to teach her a little bit to differentiate between, cause she's so precise between, uh, you know, this, by the way, this is not strictly accurate. And by the way, if this were in the movie, I would be upset about it. Um, and the latter always came down to, she wanted the law to be right. She wanted the way the law is practiced to be right. And she wanted uncle Marty to be right. And everything else was sort of free reign. The only other big note she gave me, and I really think this speaks to her credit, was she said, um, she said, I just don't want people to think that I invented this area of the law as if it had never occurred to anyone before that women should be considered people under the equal protection principle. Um, she said, you know, I built my career on the shoulders of women who came before me, like Dorothy Kenyon, like Pauli Murray, um, and people should know that. And I was, then I have to figure out what to do with that note. Um, but one thing that never happened is that, you know, she never gave me a note that came from a place of ego. So we would get to scenes where she kind of fumbles or stumbles in the script and i would think oh what's she gonna say when she gets there and then she would go and then skip ahead five pages i would say really because you gotta screw up right there she's oh it has to be that way it's more dramatic Oh, good. Uh, so she understood (laughs) so i want to talk about the flats in a sea of loafers because one of the first heels in a sea of loafers. well but it turns out to be flats (laughs) was it short i did that was one of the very few arguments i won because i I convinced her that well it's orient the film opens on the day of orientation at harvard law school for ruth so she's walking into Langdale Hall, and and I convinced her, well, it's a special occasion. Don't you think you might have dressed up a little? <laughs> she said, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. Oh, my God, her poor clerks. That's <laughs> right. Stop right there. So, so let's talk about it because one of the things when I've interviewed Justice Ginsburg, one of the things I think she talks about is that young women coming up now have no idea that this was what life was like in the 1950s and 60s. Like they think it was like 1804 things like this happen but not, not to our 20th century yeah, yeah not to our so so let's play a little clip this is um right after what you just described we've got Ruth and Marty by the way they're already married there's no like you know we fall in love at like the circus they just are married um and uh here's here's uh, a scene that I think is really powerful to sort of make the point that it was really crazy sexist at Harvard, even in the 1950s. Harvard had admitted women for the first time in 1950s. By the time she gets there, she's one of nine women in a class of 500. Um, she literally is like glowing with girl. Like it's so crazy how much she stands out. And in one of the first scenes in the movie, we've got Erwin Griswold. He's the dean of the law school. He invites these women who are going to be the class of 59 to a little dinner party to explain why the hell they get to take a man's place. And this actually happened. She tells this story. People accuse me of making it up because they're like, it's way too heavy handed. I'm like, no, 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 this is exactly how this went down. That's how it went. So let's listen to the clip. I'm Henny Callahan. Father's a lawyer back in Minneapolis. He used to give me drafts of contracts to use for drawing paper, but at some point, I got more interested in reading them than drawing on them. (laughs) In a few years, it's going to be Callahan and Callahan. That was fine. Next. Emily Hicks. Hello, Connecticut. When I finished Mount Holyoke, my mother wanted me to get married. 
But I didn't want to do that, and I didn't want to be a teacher or a nurse. So、ah, when I that's not a very good reason. Next. Sorry.、Uh, I'm Ruth Ginsburg from Brooklyn. And why are you here, Miss Ginsburg?、Uh, Mrs. Ginsburg, actually. My husband Marty is in the second-year class. I'm at Harvard to learn more about his work, so I can be a more patient and understanding wife. Okay, so this kind of opens with her—I don't—I want to say lying. I mean that she actually did say that. She she tells that story. That is not why she was at Harvard.、Uh, so there's a weird way in which she opens、uh, by telling this very and and Sam Waterston is this terrifying Erwin、um, Griswold、uh, telling him that she doesn't really belong there, but to the extent that she's there, it's just to help Marty have a better life.、Um, This is a movie about her finding her voice.、Uh, that's a really interesting place to start. Yeah, absolutely.、Um, I mean, the, the 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 story of the film is Ruth trying to figure out how to be persuasive,、um, and that's I mean that's the bulk of it. And it's it's about it's not just about making the legal arguments, which I think she was always good at. It's about you know making legal arguments is only half the battle. You also have to make the legal arguments in a way that are going to convince, especially in those days, men in authority. Who don't think you necessarily belong in what they think of as their sphere,、uh, how, to agree with them, to agree with you, and so she,、um, you know, it's a it's a matter of how she dresses, how she talks, how she covers up her accent, how she、um, presents herself,、uh, and and、uh, sort of the, the over the course of the journey of the film, it's her learning all the tools that she's going to need for the first time she ever appears in court, which was a case called Moritz v. Commissioner of Internal Revenue. So before we get to Moritz, and I want to talk about it because it is incredibly thrilling、uh, for me as a legal person to have a, you know the, the the main character be a case, <laughs> like appellate litigation. Oh my god!、Um, I think that's how the whole country feels. Yeah, no, I know,、happening. I know they do.、Um, but I, I want to also talk about this is a film that is in effect about sex discrimination law, but through this lens of this woman who cannot catch a break for the right. In addition to this, just ridiculous treatment at Harvard,、um, she then can't get a clerkship. She graduates like right, like near the top of her class. Top of her class. Top of、yeah. her class can't get a clerkship. Can't get a job. Like has very sympathetic job interviewers who are just like, yeah, no, yeah.、Um, and it's she goes she goes to teach eventually. She becomes a law professor, not because she wants to be a law professor, because she can't get another gig. Right. And so, I, I talk a little bit about this sort of. Two themes of she's experiencing this unbelievable discrimination, and she's litigating it in a way that she's trying to be sympathetic. But this is really frustrating for well, her. For, I think you know, sort of the the arc of the first act is the is the fifties, and you know, is is basically law school and not being able to get a job, and it's it's Ruth sort of becoming kind of angry,、um, right? So you know, as you said, you know, she walks in on that first day of of law school, and and the speech that Erwin Griswold. Gives, which admittedly I wrote, he didn't give,、uh, is is what I refer to as the Harvard man speech. What does it mean to be a Harvard man? And here's this one woman, you know, surrounded by all these guys. But、uh, what's crucial is that she's not, you know, she doesn't like grit her teeth and get mad about it. She's just so excited to be there. 
Um, and then, you know, she goes to this dinner and afterwards she doesn't come home and say, that Dean Griswold, what an asshole. She comes up and says, this guy's never going to take me seriously. And in fact, that was a note from Ruth because in my first draft, I had her come home and say, what an asshole. And she was like, no, no, that's the wrong sentiment. That's not the concern. Um, you know, it wasn't about like, like, I personally don't like him. I have a vendetta against him. It was about how am I ever going to thrive here if they won't take me seriously? So that's such an interesting, that's such an interesting paradigm here because I think this is a movie about being taken seriously more than it's a movie about anger. And there's a lot of anger. And we're going to talk about that in a second because she takes it out on her loved ones. <laughs> like she's yelling at Marty. She's yelling at her daughter, Jane. There's more. You're making it sound like she's raging no, throughout the no, movie. But, but to no. me, it was really striking because I've never seen her angry. Mm-hmm. But I think what you're saying is that this is not a movie about anger. This is a movie about how do I kind of tamp down the anger in order to be an effective, persuasive advocate because my anger is not going to ever redound to my benefit. Right, which is which is sort of what the whole movie explores. When once you get to you know sort of Act Two, which becomes the case for the rest of the movie, because it's really the story of one case. But you get to 1970, where the country is now much more angry, and where the, there's a whole generation after Ruth that feels comfortable expressing that anger. And here is this woman who has been raised not to express her anger, and it becomes kind of a debate between these two ideals. Um, which is straight out of growing up with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Because when I was a kid, you know, we'd be sitting at Thanksgiving and people would say, there's your aunt across the table. She changed the world. And I'm looking at her going, her? You know, and she's like quietly, very slowly eating her turkey. <laughs> because I had a vision in my head of what a feminist from the 70s is like everybody does. It was Gloria Steinem standing in front of a crowd, bringing everyone to their feet. And here was this, this quiet, precise sort of incrementalist um, and what I came to appreciate and understand is that you need both. You need you know, sustainable change comes from changing the culture, but also changing the laws and the institution. And, you know, you need the rage to move the culture forward, but you need you need the sort of calmness and an intellect of and the persuasiveness of Ruth Bader Ginsburg to move the institutions and the law forward with you. So that's why this case that you focus on, I want you to tell us about Charles Moritz. I want you to talk about the case, but you picked a case that wasn't the landmark Supreme Court case. She, she As she pointed out, she's like, why that case? Yeah. So <laughs> it's it like goes to the 10th Circuit. It's kind of but it, it is, I, I think, two things. One, she argues it with Marty. And that's important. But also, this is emblematic of the strategy, which is the way I'm going to persuade these boy judges who think in their boy heads is by bringing them a boy plaintiff. Uh, So talk about that for a little bit, because I think that becomes part of what's kind of genius. You know, for me, it was first and foremost, it was the story of a marriage. In fact, it was, you know, it was the it's Marty and Ruth arguing in court for something that they had managed to create at home, which was real genuine equality, um, which is not something you ever get to see in a movie as a husband and wife who actually support each other. And so for me, that was that was very much the driving force. It was also the first case that Ruth ever argued. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to tell an origin story of how Ruth Kiki Bader became Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, the first case seems like the place to start. And it's a fascinating case, as you said. You know, They were fighting for gender equality. Um, they were fighting for women's rights, but they were doing it by representing a man, which feels counterintuitive in some ways. There's a uh, you know, Ruth gets challenged in the movie. Someone says, "What you think the judges judges are going to be sympathetic just because they all have prostates?" You know, right. but, but, and uh, but and and in another scene, Dorothy Kenyon I think makes the point of. Um, you know, here's a well. I should explain what the case is first. Charles Moritz uh, is a was a bachelor who was taking care of his elderly mother at home, 
Uh, but he also had to work, so he hired a nurse. And because he had hired a nurse, he took a caregiver deduction on his taxes. I think something like $296 were at issue. Yep. Uh, but the IRS turned down the deduction because the tax code specifically said that that deduction was available to men if they were divorced or if they were widows or widowers um, or any women. In other words, if he had been an unmarried woman, he could take the deduction, but as an unmarried man, he was ineligible. And so what, in fact, Marty first and then showed Ruth what they, what they recognized was that um, this was a case of, of sex-based discrimination against a man. And that this, as you say, this could open up the eyes of the judges, that maybe now they could finally understand because they could put themselves in the shoes of this guy in a way that they couldn't for over 100 years put themselves in the shoes of the women who had come before them making similar arguments. And I just think this is so important, Daniel, because it's not about making women visible to male judges. In some sense, it's about making other men visible to male judges. And that seems the very opposite of what we think, right? In, in, in latter-day Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? Hobby Lobby Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Walmart Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She's like, no, we're here. Look at us. Right. But this was early days. This and what is pragmatic she... and I'm going to change the law. Okay, let's listen to her and Dorothy Kenyon. This is um, Kathy Bates as Dorothy Kenyon. And I should say, because I think you flicked at it, but let's say it really explicitly. One of the things that she always is at pains to say is, I stand on the shoulders of all the people who came before Polly Murray, Dorothy Kenyon, the, you know, the, the feminist lawyers who started blazing this trail that she feels like she inherited. And then I think Thurgood Marshall, right, who also was a part of this brick by brick, years long strategy. This is a scene where she's talking to Dorothy Kenyon. She sort of sandbags her and comes with her daughter, Jane, and comes to Dorothy Kenyon and says, like, I think now I've got this. Let's have a listen. Protection was coined to grant equality to the Negro, a task at which it has dismally failed. What makes you think women would fare any better? Please, if we could just talk. You want to know how I blew it. Is that it? What I do differently? Why? You think you can change the country? You should look to her generation. They're taking to the streets, demanding change, like we did when we fought for the vote. Our mistake was thinking we'd won. We started asking, please, as if civil rights were sweets to be handed out by judges. Protests are important, but changing the culture means nothing if the law doesn't change. As a lawyer, you must believe that. Let me guess. You're a professor, aren't you? <laughs> Ton of knowledge and no smarts. Well, we should go. You want advice? Here it is. Tell your client she won't find equality in a courtroom. My client's name is Charles Moritz. That's cute. He hired a nurse to take care of his mother, but he was denied a caregiver deduction on his taxes. He's never been married. You found a bachelor taking care of his mother at home. Judges will be repulsed by him. Feeling anything is a start. First of all, the visual is her sandwich between these two generations, right? She's got the generation before uh, Dorothy Kenyon. She's got her daughter who's on the streets protesting. They're both telling her what you're doing is dumb because social change does not come from the law. And then she sort of reels Dorothy Kenyon in by saying, I think I might have the case. And Dorothy Kenyon is not even persuaded by that. Not yet. Not yet. Um, now she's. Uh, I you know. I think Dorothy is intrigued. Darth, the real Dorothy Kenyon. Um, you know, a lot of this is. I actually find this fascinating. A lot of the sort of dialogue or the ideas that she says in that scene specifically came out of her writings on the Equal Rights Amendment. She was worried that it was too soon for an Equal Rights Amendment that the culture hadn't changed. And then right around this time in her life, 
she decided that the culture had changed enough and maybe now it was finally time and she she switched sides on that argument. And I just decided maybe Ruth Bader Ginsburg inspired that a little bit. It's interesting because one of the things that Justice Ginsburg always says, and she says this even about Roe, is that we can't get too far ahead of the culture. I right. mean, she, it, it, this, this has been a lifelong, in some sense, the Dorothy Kenyon lesson is bred in her bones too, which is the court, when it gets way out ahead of a culture that's still trying to sort things out, often sets us back. And I think she feels that that may even have been the case with abortion. So again, I think this goes to your underlying point that this is not a radical bomb thrower. This is somebody who's like wants to be just surfing that cultural moment when the country is ready for something, but she doesn't want to get too far out ahead of it. Right. And I think, but I think this, the movie is her figuring that out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know that that's where she starts out in the film. I think that's where she, she sort of gets to, uh, very near after the, the scene that you just played, um, is, just, is it's her figuring out, wait, this is the argument. This is how you do it. This is how you create the change. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg coming to understand the legal strategy that will then shape the rest of her career when she starts the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU. This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. We know that you value the journalism that we do here at Slate. And now more than ever in this time, in this world, the work we do needs your support. The best way to support our journalism is via our membership program, Slate Plus. And with a Slate Plus membership, you can enjoy this and all of Slate's other podcasts ad-free. Plus, you'll have access to exclusive bonus content from some of your very favorite Slate shows. There's a free trial to be found at slateplus.com slash amicus. And now back to our conversation with screenwriter Daniel Stiepelman about his new film, On the Basis of Sex, which happens to be about his aunt, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So let's listen to this other clip, which I love because I, I, there's this amazing relationship between her and her teenage daughter, Jane, uh, who is played as this sort of universal, petulant, you know, teenage, uh, you don't get me. And to the extent that there's real shoutiness, and I know you're like balking that I'm saying any shoutiness, but the shoutiness. balking. There's definitely <laughs> shoutiness, especially with Jane. So so that's interesting to me because, again, you know, I, I, I think of her as so utterly controlled. And yet it seems as though these are the, the scenes that tell me that there's something else going on there. And Jane, in uh, this moment, is just she's like, I'm just done with you. And you're like drip, drip stuff. I want to go hit the streets. Let's have a listen. I want to know where you were. Denise and I went to a rally to hear Gloria Steinem speak. What? Gloria Steinem. She's a writer. She just started her own magazine. She testified in the Senate. Yeah, I know who Gloria Steinem is. What if you got hurt or arrested? Mom, it's a rally, not a riot. Jane, these things can get out of hand. Okay, well, I'm 15 years old and you don't need to control every minute of my life. Yes, I do. That is my job. And your job is to go to school and learn. Gloria says we need to unlearn the status quo. So you're on a first name basis now? You know what, Mom? If you want to sit around with your students and talk about how shitty it is hey, to be a girl, language. don't pretend it's a movement, okay? It's not a movement if everyone's just sitting. 
That's a support group. Jane, that's enough. So there's a lot going on there, Daniel. But I think the thing, and I think this is initially why I called you after I saw the film, was it 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 highlights the way Ruth Bader Ginsburg is actually a beat too late for the take to the streets movement, right? Like we, in our head, we've conflated her. She and Gloria Steinem sort of share the same superhero cape, but they're actually quite profoundly generationally off. That scene has never gotten as big a laugh as it did at the New York premiere when Miss Steinem was there watching <laughs> and nobody had told her that she got a shout out in the movie. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't, I think of them as two sides of a coin that, you know, as I said earlier, you need both. You need a Gloria Steinem and you need a Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I don't think, I think, you know, they were, they were a perfect match in that way. Um, though in a lot of ways they were opposites in their, in their tactics and in their personalities. But what is it about the idea of getting arrested, you know, the idea of being on the streets that's so is that does that just go back to, you know, I know Justice Ginsburg, one of the things her mom said to her beat into her as a child was be a lady, be ladylike. Is well, there something unladylike about about getting in trouble? Well, I think I don't I don't think it's her personality. I mean, I think I think I mean, I think the 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 excitement of of being on the streets and getting arrested is you get an emotional jolt out of it, right? You sort of get an emotional, you feel like you're doing something and I'm doing it right now and it feels like a revolution and that's really exciting. I mean, why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? Except that that alone does not create sustainable change. And And Ruth's approach was just one step at a time. We're just going to take this one step at a time because it works, because that's what she's seen. I mean, I think um, I, I think you're right to, to sort of look back to Ruth's mom and who always said, you know, oh, don't give way to negative emotions. Just, you know, keep your head about you and keep moving forward. And that's how you're going to, you know, excel. And you, you can't argue that she she was wrong because certainly Ruth has excelled. So, so this brings us to the saintly Marty Ginsburg, who I think throughout the movie is like unbelievable, like, patient, generous with, you know, every time Jane and, and, and Ruth have a, a dust up, there's, you know, Marty somehow brokering it beautifully. And that was, I think, the very first question I asked you was like, come on, nobody. I you mean, and everyone else. You have a, 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 a 5,000 year history of narrative of men coming home from battle and their wives patch them up and send them out again. You write one supportive husband and people are like, such a creature could never exist. Um, well, not that, only that, but like the rippling biceps, ch- you know, of Army Hammer as he chops scallions. Well, it like it's, I mean, oh my God. Well, first of all, so Ar- Marty is, Marty was, a, 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 first of all, an incredibly handsome guy. Right? Marty and Ruth, in their 30s, they were, you know, Smoke well show. stylish, oh good looking, you know, people about town. Um, uh, maybe not Army Hammer beautiful. <laughs> uh, but it was crucial to the film to understand that, and, and, and it's accurate to Uncle Martin, that he wasn't under her thumb. Right, we live in sort of this this culture that has an idea of what you know. Just like there's ideas about like women are caregivers, which is such a huge motif in the movie. The other thing is that we live in a culture that says men are supposed to be macho. You know, like we have these definitions of masculinity, and Marty didn't fit many of those. I mean, he was a successful lawyer, he had a career, he but he also came home at the end of the day and put on an apron and cooked for his family. And like I said, he and Ruth were equal partners. They took care of the kids, they took care of the house. Um, and they both did that together. And and to me, the crucial thing about Uncle Martin was it was never a burden. It was never – he wasn't under her thumb. He wasn't, um, you know, the stereotype of like the nebbishy husband who is, you know, 
crawling on his hands and feet for his wife. He, this is a, he was doing exactly what he wanted to do. And he was just so confident and so manly about it that you need an army hammer in that role. You need to you know communicate that to the audience that this is he is exactly where he wants to be. And, um, it, you know, it was a note we got. In development too, you know, people would come with checks and say we would make this movie. The only thing is, I just don't believe in this Martin Ginsburg character. I think he should threaten to divorce her. You know, you know that would really raise the stakes. It was like you know, and it's hard to get a movie made. So when someone's there waving the money, you're like, oh, all I have to do is throw my uncle under the bus. Right. Um, he just needs to punch someone. Yeah, exactly. Like he just needs to be. He needs to fit my stereotype. What's interesting is that uh, you know now we've we've screened the movie a lot and after and I've been to several of those screenings and afterwards a lot of men come up to me and say wow I don't live up to the ideals that I thought I did and now I'm going to do better and a lot of men come up to me and go that guy couldn't possibly exist you know you're you're full of it uh, and it's interesting you know, it's like which one do you want to be married to um, yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a good date movie in that regard sort of a litmus <laughs> test uh, <laughs> if the guy storms out, right? Then, if he doesn't believe in it, then then move on. So, so it is interesting because I remember when my kids were little. Your kids are a little younger than mine, but when I my kids were little, I remember interviewing Justice Ginsburg and her saying, "You, it it starts with finding the partner. If you don't find the partner who supports this, it's a really." uphill battle it's a slog yeah, and you it's have to fight so much out there you don't want to come home and have to fight it there too and we're still i mean marty was ahead of his time for the 50s and 70s right. he's still ahead of his time i mean i think we're doing a better job of two career households but you know statistically women are still coming home and doing all the housework or most of the housework uh and 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 so to see a real partnership on screen is you know for uh, you know as i said my wife and i really looked to ruth and marty as our role models for what a marriage was supposed to be like and we were so lucky to have that because, you know, my, my wife's an oncologist. I, I'm obviously a writer. We have two kids. Um, and we we do it all together. And we realized how fortunate we were to have them. And that was part of the motivation for writing the movie was this is something I can share, this good fortune that I've had. I can share it with other people. So talk for a minute about Mel Wolf because he is the anti-Marty in this movie, right? He's, he's, also he's the an anti-Ruth. Ally. <laughs> right. He's an ally. He's, he's um, you know, he's, he's the one at the ACLU who's telling her – sort of the scope of what he's going to allow her to do at the Women's Rights Project. And he, so on paper, he's an ally. And yet, oh my God, every time he can undermine, he does. Let's just, before we talk about him, let's listen to a clip where he is part of a moot court. They're they're preparing for this argument in this Moritz case. And uh, here's, here's Mel... Mel Wolf trying to help her get ready for oral argument. And this is Justin Thoreau as Mel Wolf. Why shouldn't men be nurses? And if if women want to fight fires... pilots? Yeah, again, if women choose to take on these roles... Judges? Why not? CEOs, generals. What about garbage men? You want to be a garbage man? And if if men want to be teachers or raise children, percentages aren't the point. People should be able to pursue their passions. You're screwing it up, Ruth. Have you you read the appendix attached to their brief? These are laws... Written by men who think we are privileged to be excused from men's obligations, but it is not a privilege, it is a cage, and these laws are the bars. So that's it? You're going to take them all on at the same time? So that guy's on her team. Mel Wolf was a, the real Mel Wolf was a fascinating guy. He was the legal director of the ACLU. He could have gone to a private firm and been a partner and made a fortune. He dedicated his life to social justice. Um, 
And then by the end of his career, sort of got booted out the back door of the ACLU. He was a divisive figure. He was a very strong personality. He would bully and cajole people into doing what he, the way things, the way he wanted them done. Um, and you know, like you said, he was an ally, but he was also uh, he was also Mel. And at some point in this same scene. He says, crushingly, would it kill you to smile, right? Yeah. Like, he wants her to be more charming at the Tenth Circuit. But his deeper point is a point that she does take to heart eventually, which is that you have to be persuasive. The judges can't be afraid of you, right? As you said, you know, the, at this point, I think people had sort of this vision in their head, the same vision I had as a kid of what a feminist was. And that, you know, she was going to be this, you know, woman on the street, you know, tear down the system. And 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 the deeper sort of note behind the note that he's giving her is is you've got to show them that you are not that. Because if they're scared of you and they're scared of what you represent, then they're not going to side with you. And it's he says it in the most condescending, awful way. That while he chewing. Could. Yeah. yeah, while while <laughs> while chewing while chewing the food that Marty cooked. Um but but his deeper point isn't wrong. And that's what's so infuriating about Mel Wolf. And that's why he's sort of a, a great ally and antagonist at the same time. And and it and it has this beautiful counterpoint because we just finished talking about how, you know, she's saying to other people, including her daughter, we can't get too far out ahead of our skis on this. And then here's Mel Wolf saying, don't get out too far ahead of this. So in a way, he's channeling her fundamental conservatism back at her and saying, right, don't take on this whole thing at once. This is you don't have to get into a fight about garbage men to win this case. Right. The strategy is is, you know, the strategy he's dictating becomes the strategy of the women's rights project. So in a weird way, this is a story about somebody who is small C conservative, learning to be even more small c conservative in some ways in terms of at least the litigation strategy. You could see why some I'm worried some people are going to be pissed off at our version of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, I think it's I mean, I think, as you said, it's quite a counter narrative to the, you know, she was out there burning stuff down narrative that we like to tell. I'm thinking about all the people who uh, are just going to go see this movie and fall in love with this movie because at the end of the day, it's a really sweet love story about it's a love story it's a it's a i was gonna say david and goliath but lila and goliath yeah, uh, you yeah. know it's uh it's sort of a classic hollywood movie yeah. in a lot of ways and and with like great hair and great costumes and uh a real feeling of the 50s and the 70s and, and yet it's insidious it's kind of doing something far more than that talk about that for a minute yeah of course i mean the movie works the way ruth bader ginsburg works right it's uh it, Ruth was able to make a revolutionary argument because she presented herself in a way that was approachable and palatable and 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 made the judges feel comfortable in a way. Um, and and that's basically how the movie works. The movie presents itself as a sort of classical Hollywood biopic. Um, and that's how it can make a sort of revolutionary argument at, you know because it's a classic Hollywood biopic, but it's a classical Hollywood biopic with a female lead about tax law <laughs> and a husband who wears an apron and a teenage daughter who never talks about boys or clothes. Um, and so it can make those sort of revolutionary arguments in a way that makes the audience say, you know, grab your kids, grab a bucket of popcorn. It's coming out on Christmas Day. You know, it's it's a joyous, fun movie, uh, you know, with a point. The last thing that I found so interesting about Felicity Jones, who's this very British, you know, very, very different 
character from the Ruth Bader Ginsburg that that you and I know about is is this voice thing. And so, you know, at one metaphorical level, this is a film about her finding her voice. But talk a little bit about Felicity Jones learning to do like Brooklyn Jewy, you know, sort of that there's a real voice is a character in some ways in this film. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's more than just her voice. It's it's the whole way she presents herself throughout the movie, right? The opening, Ruth's opening line of dialogue in the movie, and it's not a coincidence, is right after or when Griswold gives that Harvard man speech, she walks up to Marty with two dresses in her hand and says, which one makes me look more like a Harvard man? <laughs> and it's a gag, but it's also like the central theme, which is how I'm trying to fit in. I'm trying to fit in enough so that I, you know, it's her, it's a, it's something that I think um, a lot of women can relate to and a lot of Jewish people can relate to, which is how much do I want to fit into the mainstream and how much do I want to own myself and and be proud of who I am? Um, and, and that's what she's exploring throughout the movie. And so, um, you know, for Felicity, it's not just, you know, it, it's, it wasn't just in the voice, it's the way she carries herself, the way she walks, the way, and, 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 and I can tell you as a nephew, the, the mimicry aspect of the performance is uncanny. I mean, it's just incredible. Uh, but one of the things that Felicity taught me when we were on set is she was like, listen to the tapes from the 70s, because that's what she did to prepare. She was listening to tapes of Ruth doing oral arguments in the Supreme Court. And in those tapes, you know, we all have the voice of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in our head as like an 85-year-old Bubby who is now in a position where she can say anything she wants and she knows she's going to be listened to. But to become that woman, she had to be persuasive and she had to be non-threatening, which you know we've been talking about in the context of feminism, but it also meant sort of covering up her Brooklyn-ness, her Jewishness. Her... And so uh, when you listen to the tapes, what you get is this sort of almost, mid- well, I would call it Midwestern, uh, Felicity called it almost golden age of Hollywood style accent where she sort of covers up her Brooklyn. But then, and this is the part that I just blows me away about Felicity's performance, when she gets a emotional when she starts to get angry she like she leads into the Brooklynese and then she recovers her poise and she and she and she leads out of it again and then there were certain words on the tapes that always came out you know from from the hood you know like so whenever she talked about New York mother anything associated with home those words always came out in full-on Brooklyn how does mother sound in full-on Brooklyn I'm not gonna do it I'm not full of crazy. <laughs> you're gonna get calls about that that's his Brooklyn accent um you know, but uh, you know, I think like there's a, there's a moment in the movie where I think you really see it, or where I really see it, is uh, when she's going through her job interviews, which you mentioned, and and she, you know, it looks like she's going to get the job, um, and and she's finally sort of like relaxes a little bit, and sort of eases into the Brooklyn accent a little bit, and then realizes she has to recover her poise and, and goes out of it again. I don't want to blow the scene, so I'm not going to say any more than that. Uh, but for me, you know, for Ruth, who can be a hard person to know. She can be hard to read because she she keeps up this shell. She keeps up this facade of calmness, especially when she's in public, especially when she's in front of authority figures. Um, the way Felicity sort of plays that accent like a harp to give you insight into what's going on in her soul, I just think is it, it's so beautiful. I walked out of the movie. I think I told you this when we spoke on the phone. I walked out just sad, Daniel. I was like nostalgic. That's not what, totally what we were going for, but well, okay. I, and I just woke up nostalgic for a 1972, like that feeling of like we're all around the conference table, like the the, the big afros, the turtlenecks, you know, storming the barricades, this feeling that it was all before us, 
that it was yeah. all about to happen. It's interesting, you know, one of the Ruth's reaction to the film when she saw it the first time, she said, "I'm just so glad that it's joyous." It is. She said, "You know, I, you know, that's what feminism was like for me in the '70s." She said, "You know, we weren't angry, we weren't depressed. We had this sense that the world was getting better, and we were at the forefront of that change." And I think that's what you're missing. That's what I'm missing. Like right, right now. To sort of be a liberal or to have these liberal ideals or what we call liberal ideals are is you feel like you're on the defensive. You don't feel like you're winning. You feel angry about it. And she's talking about a time when when you felt joyous about it. You felt optimistic about it. Um, And I think, you know, that's the that's the special alchemy to Ruth is that she's so steely. She's so driven. She's so precise. But it's all undergirded by joy and optimism. And I think that's that. That's the part we start to lose in the memes and stuff like that is that is that she's a joyous person who who, you know, to this day, I mean, yesterday said to me, you know, the pendulum's going to swing back. It might not happen in my lifetime, but but this is just a phase and there's going to be another phase and it's going to keep getting better because that's the trajectory of America. She really believes in that she believes in she believes in the country she believes in the institutions she reveres the court and the constitution um, and she believes that they're gonna they're gonna continue to show us the way you know towards greater freedom for more people and I guess that's the thing you know when I was trying to soothe myself <laughs> after the after all the turtlenecks I said to myself this is the difference is that you don't stand up in front of panels of all men judges anymore that women and have, you never will again we never no well <laughs> I mean well but I think I mean I think there's like beca- because of the way she did it right because she made the slow change cultural changes the culture will move like waves but but institutional change it's sort of by it takes a long time to make, but it also takes a long time to tear down. Right. It's like I don't think we can imagine getting to a point where like women don't have the vote anymore. Right. Like those are institutional changes that were made. Um, you know, yes, there's a lot of white men being put on the courts right now, but I don't think we're gonna get to a time where there are no women judges anymore. Um, or ever again. I don't think we're going to get to a time where there are no women on the Supreme Court ever again. Uh, you know that those those are those are bigger sort of structural changes, and they take longer to make, but they also take longer to tear down. I, I think that's why I wanted to talk to you today, and I think it's why this film gave me huge comfort because I think that if you believe in the slow drip drip, the inexorable you know arc of the moral universe. Uh, there is something really powerful about coming out of this movie and saying, at minimum, we have fundamentally changed the legal architecture. And that isn't only because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but largely because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, she put it into action in a way that almost is invisible now. And the idea that, you know, not all that long ago, you couldn't get a credit card, you know, you could get fired for being pregnant, which, you know, she had to hide her pregnancy in our lifetime, in her lifetime. That's extraordinary. We don't go back to that. And now we have this amazing substructure that she's put into place. And I think that more and more, it feels to me as though I don't know how joyful I feel about it at this minute, but I do feel very confident about it. And I think she does as well. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I have a hard time feeling joyful about it too because I have I have kids in the future and yeah. and 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 wonder what the country that we're making for them is right now and and where is it headed and and it's hard not to feel worried about those things. Um, but I'm not Ruth. Ruth Ruth continues to feel optimistic. 
Danielle Stiebelman is the writer of On the Basis of Sex. It was directed by Mimi Leader, starring Felicity Jones and swoony woke Army Hammer. And it is opening Christmas Day, Daniel. Christmas Day Limited, uh, nationwide, January 11th. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for, I think, as macaroni and cheese conversation goes, this was like macaroni and cheese with a really, it was the truffled mac and cheese. Ooh, fancy. Of the constitutional law world. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, our email is amicus at slate.com and you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast and we love your letters and your feedback. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcasts and June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We wish you and your family happy holidays. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.